Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. On the brink of extinction. Back in the 1940s, there was around 20 in the whole world. One of North America's tallest birds is making a comeback. When I hear them in the marsh, they echo. This week on Open Record, how Wisconsin wetlands are helping to save a species. The future of open cranes in Wisconsin is good. It's an exciting project to be a part of. Studios, this is Open Record. I'm Brian Polson, and I am joined once again by Open Records executive producer Sarah Smith. Hey, Sarah. Hi. And we are joined by Fox 6 weather expert Eric Mangus. Eric, thanks for being on the podcast. To be first time, and I am honored. I love this podcast, so I'm glad I get to finally annoy it with my airwaves. <laughs> He's not just saying that, by the way, because Eric mm-hmm. will come to me and say, Hey, yes. your last episode, and he'll have uh, his thoughts. And, yes. and so uh, he is a big fan, and we appreciate you being on here as well. We are recording this episode on Wednesday. Wednesday, August 9th, for release on Thursday, August 10th. And Eric, we're going to talk about a story you recently put together about a big bird nearly lost forever uh, in the world, but, uh, you know, into the annals of history. But thanks to conservation efforts right here in the state of Wisconsin, they are making a comeback. What prompted you to tell a story about whooping cranes? So it was last fall when I was driving home to Rochester, Minnesota. Um, So basically straight west through the state. Really invigorating drive. Not really, but... There's a point where we're passing through some cornfields just past the Baraboo area, Madison area, and there were probably over 10,000 sandhill cranes. Sandhill cranes are the most abundant crane in the world, so it's not abnormal to see a lot of them, but to see so many at one time. And then when I got back, I took some photos, got back to work, did a digital write-up talking about how, oh my goodness, the migration has begun for sandhill cranes. The post blew up, and then I made a comment on the post like, hey, you guys want me to do a post about whooping cranes? And, you know, I've been doing bird watching now for about three years and whooping cranes are kind of like that, uh, about as cool as it gets. If you see one, you definitely have seen one. It, it's a kind of a, it makes you stop in your tracks because just how huge they are and just how beautiful they are too. So that was the kind of the beginning of things. And then I got connected with a uh, Doug Pellerin, who's a very talented volunteer, citizen scientist himself. And then the rest was history in terms of just really amazing people that helped me make the story possible. So whooping cranes, and and I think we, we can probably talk about it later too, but they look different. They are different. They might look a little similar to sandhill cranes, but they are different. So why is when you see, you know, you say, oh, when you see one, you know it. Mm-hmm. Is it that unique to even see one around here? Yeah. So there's only just over 800 in the entire world. Some in captivity, but fortunately we're getting more and more in the wild. Now we have herons that look similar. We have egrets that look similar, but cranes are the tallest. But in in actuality, it is the whooping crane that is five feet tall, all white, some black on the tips of its feather, on the tips of its wings, on its face, some red and black too. It looks like you'd seen a ghost, I guess, because just how big it is. It, mm-hmm. it almost doesn't look real. And it's just weird to think that you have this amazing, huge bird 
right here in our state. What really stood out to me, you just said that you had come across this migration where you saw thousands mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. sandhill cranes and there are 800 whooping cranes in the whole world. Mm -hmm. You saw 10,000 sandhill cranes in one place. What's the what's going on here? Why are whooping cranes so rare and, and, and why are they endangered? Great, great question. So Anne Lacey, she's the North American director at the International Crane Foundation. She put it really well. We have the most abundant crane in the world and the least abundant crane in the world. Now, whooping cranes, the reason why they have such lower numbers in comparison, well, they're much more selective about the land they need. They need large areas of wetlands. They need food sources, but specific food sources, too, when they migrate. And then probably the biggest bottleneck is simply how long it takes them to raise chicks. They get it takes them years to learn how to be a parent. Don't we all need time to learn these <laughs> I'm things? I'm still Same. learning. <laughs> yeah. But with these whooping cranes, they take a lot more time than sandhill cranes. And because of that and other pressures from habitat loss and unregulated hunting in the 1800s and early 1900s, when we were making the map, the graph of their population for the story, if I would have gone back to the beginning of the 1800s, some of the population estimates, it started at around 10,000. And then it collapsed because your, your graph goes way down, yeah. but it's starting. It, it doesn't show the whole picture Before that. It would have right. been way up in the air. Yes. And so when I was kind of talking with Ann Lacey, the best way to go about showing the numbers and we didn't want to bog it down, but shade, mm -hmm. let's say that, oh, my goodness, this is never going to come back. We've gotten back to the population that was here 100 years ago. So it's taken us this long mm -hmm. to get back to where we were. Because well, when you say there's 800 in the world now, that doesn't sound like very much. But it was down to where we yeah. were talking about our last couple of dozen whooping cranes anywhere. And it's sad and that's that, all that was left. And yeah. it's sad that we've seen, you know, uh, rhino species in recent times go extinct. But now whooping cranes were so close. If you think about a couple dozen, what is that? I mean, right. that you could see nowadays possibly a couple dozen in one day, which is so exciting. Um, in a larger population that goes from Texas to Canada. So one of the a huge migratory route, and that's another initiative, but that's why Wisconsin was so important to get a new population established. And the Crane Foundation was a big reason. But that's part of it too, is you talked about the the wetlands and that's kind of the the how the whooping cranes are selective about what they need and how they thrive. And Wisconsin has a lot of marshland. Mm -hmm. And this was another great thing. Stephanie Schmidt, um, a Another really talented scientist that works with the International Crane Foundation talks in detail more in the story about our historic wetlands that farmers, you know, when they came to the Midwest, we had so much rich soil, tall grass prairie soil. We also had a lot of wetlands in between. And to get from one point A to point B, sometimes the easiest way was to drain it, drain it with draining tiles, to divert rivers, to shape land the way we wanted. And so we lost a lot of wetlands in Indiana and portions of Ohio. The Black Swamp is was the largest wetland we had. But now Wisconsin has those historic wetlands. They didn't get drained. Mm -hmm. Then the Horicon Marsh right here in southeast Wisconsin is a great example. If you let it flood, if you let it be wild again, amazing how much life returns. And that has kind of now become the mecca of bird watching in the state because you get whooping cranes. You get all kinds of cool uh bitterns and warblers come through. So it's an amazing place that has more than just cranes. But if you protect the land, you get all kinds of life that comes back. I love watching any story where I really learn something. Mm -hmm. And I really learned some things watching this. One of the things, first of all, I didn't realize that the, the stark difference between the population of one type of crane, like a sandhill crane versus whooping cranes. Yeah. But when you talk about bringing a species back um, th from the brink of extinction, uh, 
How do you do that? What do you, and you really talked about some of the things that the, the, uh, and, and by the way, I didn't even realize there was a, uh, a you know, an international crane, crane foundation, foundation right? yeah. in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Um, but talk a little bit about, can you tell us about how they go about trying to bring that species back and some of the things they've had to do to even teach them sort of how to do what they're supposed to do? So it's not exactly Jurassic Park. So we're not splicing DNA of frogs with turtles and everything, but it is an intensive process. So Ronald Suey and George Archibald, when they were grad students at Cornell University, kind of a big deal for birds. They, one was from the Baraboo area. They knew about the land and the area was suitable for wetlands. And because they're big bird nerds like me, they knew that cranes were a very vulnerable species. So after they graduated, they came back to Baraboo, Wisconsin, started the International Crane Foundation. And through the process of hand rearing, and it took, they had a lot of errors. Now, Janice Hughes wrote a book that I read before this story to get a better picture of the history. And the history is devastating at times because the errors that we learn over time we used to think, oh, they're just birds. It's very easy. Let them just sit in a pen together. It'll work. No, the case was oftentimes they need large areas, the stress of human beings, close proximity. They need the habitat. They need the diversity of food as well. The diet is a big part of it. And these are tough lessons the International Crane Foundation had to learn, but over time perfected. And then comes migration. So now you successfully raise a young chick, you get it to a point to where it can fly and it can migrate. But Where is it going to migrate? It's never done it before. It's a brand new state. The parents don't exist to show them the way. So they use ultralight planes. So these prop like gliders, they went stop by stop from Wisconsin down to Florida. Mm -hmm. And that might be the craziest thing that I kind of just gloss over, but we didn't have good video of and we didn't have anyone. Well, that's that, why this is great because we can yeah. talk about it because I'm trying to, are they, yeah. are they flying the plane and the, and the cranes are following? They're I mean, literally they yeah. wrangling them. So the keepers are in costume still driving these ultralight gliders, <laughs> wrangling them. So they they would yeah. start, they had to practice this, teach the cranes that when they start circling, oh, cranes, it's time to flutter up and go. And during this migration, the early 2000s, you know, it was hard, but they found that they could learn this migration path down mm-hmm. to Florida. And why Florida was considered such an important place is this place called the Everglades uh-huh. and other portions of the state that have a lot of wetlands. Mm-hmm. So the whole process was it took years and years and years and it took another 10 years until we had a wild born chick in wisconsin and in the story we included another one so in the last 20 years we've seen this very slow and steady increase in wild born chicks in the state which to the crane foundation is showing that the introduction process has worked but the numbers aren't big enough to avoid disease or if there's a hurricane right. that could have a decimation of so the they're population. still really vulnerable right. yes it's yes. fragile but you're starting to see that possibility of future growth mm-hmm. well and we were talking about some of the deaths too about these birds and it's when there are only let's just say two dozen of these birds and three died that's a big percentage and it's a big hit to them but they kept powering through the you know the, the icf and to, to make this all happen and another thing that gives i think just the crane spirit hope is the longevity of these birds this is not your um goldfinch that doesn't live more than five years typically this is a bird that can live 30 years plus sometimes and in captivity even longer than that so if there is an unsuccessful year of nesting um they still it's a learning process but predation and power lines is the biggest 
cause of death and mortality for the whooping crane. And there is times when it's poaching is an instance that can uh, injure them. And oftentimes it's an out of season hunt. It's someone that is obviously malicious, malicious intent. Uh, the Crane Foundation want to make that clear. We don't have hunters just going out trying to get this huge bird it is criminals doing these things. And um, in the story she mentions, it's a huge loss because two, we started with only a couple dozen birds. So the genetics of those couple dozen birds, there's only so many parent populations or different configurations to prevent inbreeding because we need as much genetic variation as we can. So we want so, this bird to survive and thrive. This may be a really dumb question. It probably is, but because I'm new to all of this, why do they need to migrate at all? Like, why is that important? Why do they need to go from Wisconsin to Florida? Great story, because we have this. So in Wisconsin, we have um, some pretty harsh winters. Okay, as oh, that we do. So, <laughs> yeah. We do. Yeah. You know, we get ten. You got to get them out of here. Birds yeah. go south for the winter. Well, right? they yeah. lose their food source. Oh yeah. One year, so I, in this process, Doug told me about how there's a bird that didn't migrate. It stayed here all winter long. We got down to the negative teens. Survive. That is a hardy wow, bird. Now, yeah. I believe he told me that they did leave some corn feeding stations out. So okay, when yeah. the water freezes over, they cannot go wade through the wetlands for food mm -hmm. anymore. Mollusks and other insects as well. But it survived off corn through the winter. And so that's another, sh it's just to show that an animal that can bounce back from the brink of extinction, it's got, it's got some tough, it's got that dog in them. <laughs> it can survive some yeah. left hooks. And so it was really incredible to learn that, that. The wintertime, that's why they bail down south, and then they do return to the plentiful growth period of Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. The One of the things that you touched on, and you just talked about it a little bit with the poaching, um, but one of the challenges is that because the Sandhill, I guess let's back up a little bit. Talk about the hunting of Sandhill cranes mm -hmm. and Wisconsin in that whole equation. So there are some southern states that allow the hunting of sandhill cranes. Um, they do cause some crop damage to the corn. So as soon as you put corn in the ground, they'll kind of be sifting through it. That's when their migration up kind of coincides with planting and then fall migration. That's when they head back down. So after farmers go through their fields, they have all this corn around. And so it doesn't cause the damage, but in the spring it can. So some states to manage their sandhills because their numbers are surpassed what historically we did have. They don't have much predation. We've lost a lot of our apex predators in most ecosystems, and we did protect them for a long period of time. Now that they're no longer endangered, the sandhill crane was in low numbers too. All birds were in low numbers, mm -hmm. to be clear. The, the feather market was insane in Europe back in the 1800s and early 1900s. But to focus on the hunt, some states do allow the hunting of cranes, sandhill cranes, and there is, unfortunately, sometimes a casualty of a whooping crane and sandhill crane because they have close you proximity. Showed, you showed that in the story. I, that, yes. That they are so much alike. Yes. Except for their coloring is yes. really what is the difference, right? And the way I, I tried in the beginning, it's almost like seeing a ghost. It's like seeing a ghost of a sandhill because it's all yeah, white. Right. It's It's kind yeah, of this... Right. This eerie spirit, you think of like, uh, I think back to like spirit bear, like other things. If you see a white grizzly bear, it's like a sign <laughs> of your grandfather. Anyway, the point with the hunt, though, is they're trying to manage this population. And because we're trying to act as the predator. Now, whooping cranes can get in the crossfire of this, and especially a new population, very vulnerable to a loss, which is why if we did allow the hunting of sandhills in Wisconsin, that could have some big impacts. Now, the hunting groups that want to do this are more of those southern states. And so it definitely is kind of a crossroads. Fortunately, right now, it, I wouldn't say it's a highly political hunt uh, 
process like wolves. It's still, though, an issue that a lot of conservationists and a lot of hunters as well, and many hunters are conservationists at their core as well, too. It's just a discussion on what's the best for the species as well. Well, but what's interesting is you say it's, it's, it's not maybe a big political issue yet, but it did come up here in Wisconsin. In the last legislative session, there was, in fact, a proposal to create a sandhill crane hunt because when you talk about the population, and, and I, as I Sarah knows I do this, whenever we have a topic come up here, I'd like to do my own research and dig in and find a little bit more because I want to be able to ask good questions. Mm-hmm. And, and so I looked up this legislation, and I was curious who supports it and mm-hmm. who was against it. And there's a long list of people who lobbied on both sides of this bill. When you look at who was in favor of it, a lot of them are agricultural groups, not just hunting. Mm-hmm. Now, the Wisconsin Waterfowl Association, probably one of the biggest supporters of it. But you had the Corn Growers Association and Farm Bureau and others who were saying, yeah, we want to see a hunt because the number of sandhill cranes has gone far beyond what the federal government sort of recommends as the optimal level and they're damaging crops. So they're going, yeah, we want this. But then you've got other groups coming in and going, whoa, 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 there's this could be a real problem. And and obviously for the whooping crane, it could be a huge problem. And from my understanding, um, there are programs if there is crop damage done by sandhill cranes, there are ways that the farmers can get reimbursed for that damage. But in terms of the overall impacts and that the Crane Foundation does work with farmers to do a taste. So to put a a coating on the kernel of the corn, that as it eats it, I I haven't tasted it myself. I mean, I don't like spicy food, so if it was (laughs) spicy, I wouldn't like it either. But if that uh, a way to put the taste of it to no longer make it taste good. And they've had some success with it, but this costs more money for the same amount of kernels. So if you're thinking about as a farmer, why am I going to pay $150 more per acre? As an example, I don't know what the cost is to see minimal improvements. I can see how hunting is just the easier solution. It also could produce tax revenue. It could also give a lot more money back to the state, some kind of tourism dollars. But I think as well, there's, there's a very, obvious possible crossing of interest here. We're doing so much money and so much effort for the whooping cranes, sandhills. What's the cost analysis here? I still think it's, and talking with Ann Lacey, it is so expensive to bring a species back from extinction. And no one wants to be the one that accidentally shot a whooping crane. Mm -hmm. And so it's, how do we balance that as a state? And right now it's not legal. I would say it didn't pass. And, And so far from what I could see, it has not come back in this legislative session, did you get any sense? Does the International Crane Foundation, are they concerned that this will come back? Are they prepared in case it does? Well, when I did ask those questions to Stephanie Schmidt, she had a very well thought out answer prepared pretty much. So I can tell that this question has been asked before. Mm -hmm. And I do want, whenever I do these stories, I, you know, try to simplify things. What is the importance? And, you know, as not a journalist in the classical sense, how do you keep the focus of the story And um, I didn't want to make this turn into something like, should we hunt them or should we not? Mm Because, you know, it's it's uh, I don't want to. The main issue is to bring the numbers back. And if Mm -hmm. hunting isn't the biggest cause of mortality, I didn't want to make that the center focus of things where it's still down to power lines and also habitat loss. That is the limiting factor. But is wind wind power a concern also? I know with other birds that's been a concern. Has that been with whooping crane? I can't speak on that exactly. Stephanie specifically mentioned power line collisions. Mm -hmm. I do know that from a greater bird perspective, wind turbines, huge impacts on bird populations. Even in the middle of nowhere, you can have what you'd consider not a typical flyway, such as the Mississippi River. Even out Mm -hmm. in the middle of Kentucky, in the middle of the Dakotas, 
there's collisions that happen and with bats too there's a lot of consequences that you know <laughs> we have to make the world tick somehow but there's um how do we do it the most sustainable way the most balanced way and i think we're still trying to find that balance in the state so do we think I say we because clearly now we're all bird experts. Um, it, does the ICF think that that they can get whooping cranes at some point off an endangered list? You know, what are, what's the what's the hope and what are kind of the next steps for them? I do, I do remember at one point in our conversation with Ann Lacey, the North American director, that there is if you project out their population growth, continue mm -hmm. a more linear path. I do believe there's a chance they could just be considered federally threatened, mm -hmm. no longer endangered within the next fifty years, but I still with the next 50 years. So this isn't a thing. that oh, happens. Oh, yeah. This like is, this yeah, is over a long yeah. period of time. Hopefully in my lifetime, I, I will see them no longer considered endangered. But uh, at this current pace, it's a good pace. But let's not pretend that we're at 10,000 here. It's still just over 800. And um, we still rely on a lot of volunteers and photographers to get this data of where these birds are going, the habitats they prefer. And the Crane Foundation does an amazing job uh, tally tallying all this data just on a database to where the birds are and how we can do best to help support chicks in the future. Cause it's incredible work they do. Well, if you're anything like me before this, you knew little to nothing about whooping cranes. Same. I feel far more educated. Mm -hmm. And I really do find it fascinating that our state, the state of Wisconsin yeah. is playing such a huge role in saving a species from extinction. I mean, it gives me hope. And if things like this with nature and weather it all kind of coincides or sciences, we're all here on the same team. Team Earth, all right. How do we how do we make the next day a <laughs> little bit <shirts>. better? <laughs> and so, like you know, whether it's you know these other stories I talked about, the rusty patch bumblebee, another uh, federally endangered species in the state. I just saw one yesterday behind the weather deck. All right. Yeah, got that registered. So <laughs> things like this, good things are happening, and I want to highlight not necessarily the negatives that oh we did all this damage to nature. I want to highlight the people that are really doing the boots on the ground work because there's groups in our own backyard and it's it's pretty inspiring stuff in this case boots in the marsh boots in the mm. marsh and that's a good time for us to go off the record and this is the part of the podcast where we get a little more casual and have a little fun by answering a question for which we have not prepared and here to ask us that question is Open Records executive producer, Sarah Smith. And you're going to think I'm being rude by looking at my phone right now, but I need to pull this picture up so that I can um, present this question. So um, there is a dry erase board here at Fox 6 back um, near the editing bays. Oh, and the it brackets. always the so, bracket. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it, right. It, so there's there's I'll say permanent, but they're just it, there's black tape that make like tournament a bracket. brackets. Like a, yeah, yeah. So like a NCAA. And so someone can come up with what the bracket is going to be. Uh, and then everyone kind of fills in. Yeah. So whether it's this movies started, or soundtracks. During like March Madness one year, right? Probably. Yeah. And we decided, and, and, and our, our editor, Dave Machuda, decided to start turning it into yeah. different topics that we would pit things against and, each other and see what wins And it out. isn't just the editors that are writing on there. Our news director goes back and fills it out. And, uh, you know, so we can, anyway. So that's that. So picture that. The topic, the bracket for this most recent one is potatoes. The humble potato. So this different is, types of potatoes so in competition. Different types of potatoes. Very strong opinions with yeah, potatoes. Yeah, I okay. had some I had uh, real disagreements with how this turned I out. I 100% agree with all of those thoughts. So let me just tell you some of them on there and then let's just have an open discussion about what sure. our favorite potato products are. <laughs> okay. Because there are so many. So some of them that were on the original, I don't know how many I heard, 24, uh, baked, pan-fried, 
chips, au gratin, tater tots, wedges, twice-baked American fries, scalloped, waffle fries, mashed, hash browns, pancakes, curly fries, in a spud gun, uh, French fries. Now, the thing to know is when, when, these, when the brackets are set up, there's no real, uh, this isn't like the actual NCAA no. where we're looking at regular season records and determining. No. So you're randomly filling in. Yeah. But what happens is it, it's one against another. They've got to win that round to get to the next yes. round. So you might end up with two of the best entries. We've done this with movies. Yeah. You get two phenomenal movies that go up against each other in the first round. One of them's losing out. Seeding and some weaker is thing is, key. Yeah, seeding that's, is key. That's right. true. If it's a bad yeah. seed, then yeah. you know the judges who put up the that's potatoes they had were biased. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. And if you're putting tots There's up a, against like a baked potato, that seems rude. But I'm, you, are you going to tell us? Well, yes. Go ahead. All right. Well, tell us where we so got because I'll, I'll I have to. I'll tell thoughts. you how it all narrowed down. So the final two, the championship of the potatoes was baked and mashed. I have a lot of thoughts about that. I have. Uh, my son, <laughs> so, by the way, would tell you that that's the squishy part of the potato in either case. And no. Right. No. Okay. Right. Mashed potatoes in the finals? Yeah. And, well, I'll tell you that. Whoa. Well, what, what? Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> mashed potatoes deserves to be there. Wait, wait, wait. Okay. There are a million ways to prepare mashed potatoes, and yeah. there might be certain configurations that deserve to be French there. Style. We're just talking French plain style mashed potatoes. I don't even know what that means, Kale. You, you want to check you me have on a this, potato Kale? Do you restaurants? Have a potato okay. Ricer, okay. And cream and butter. It's amazing. I'm going to point cream something out. Cream and butter. Okay. okay. Of all the potato types out there. Yeah. You would put mashed as the winner? No, no, no. Just let, let me explain. Yes. Whoa. French fries didn't even make the final four. It's broken. And I'm telling you. There is no one lining up in the McDonald's drive-thru for mashed potatoes. No. So it's not happening. Wendy's did used to make a mean <laughs> potato though, right? Like they had a the baked or baked potato. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would agree with that. So they did have a good baked potato. Uh, and KFC has really good mashed potatoes, but I, I think it's the gravy that makes it good. I could so, see waffle fries versus mashed potatoes. Does anyone yeah. say, does anyone go to a restaurant <laughs> with their friends and go, hey, everybody, should we get a plate of mashed potatoes? Yes, no. at a steakhouse. No. no. Yes, you do. No, no, at a steakhouse, <laughs> you certainly get a baked potato. <laughs> Kale, you also have a very different restaurant experience right. and palate. French you mashed have, potatoes yes. with truffles grated on top. Uh, Done. Maybe. See, I prefer a little bit more peel on my mashed potato, so I like baby reds in the mashed potato. Eric, what's your favorite potato product? It's got to be waffle fries, but okay. I it's it's tough because of it's it depends who's making the waffle fry and yes. if we add the word sweet in front of it. Oh, sweet I'm potato a sucker for sweet. Oh, you oh, are. Okay. okay. All right. I a think good that old ruins. American yam. I love <laughs> I think you I think the that ruins the Speaking experience. of yams, <laughs> And another thing that was on that list, the spud gun. Yeah. Yams are the best in a potato gun. They Let fly me just tell you. or what? They seal better. Oh. Obviously, oh. obviously Kale, we all knew that. Come on. Wait, uh, obviously. <laughs> I mean, come on. Who hasn't tried, a, you know, a red, a, what would have, I don't even know. My, I'm going to try throwing a couple kind of potato out there. I don't know gun. what kind of potato. A Yukon Gold would work very yeah. well oh, in a potato are, gun, yeah, too. Yeah, those are little. Kale? So what, okay, so then what? what's your favorite? So for, first of all, I'm going to point out, well, the problem with waffle fries, which can be very good, is you get fewer fries per volume, so you feel yeah. like they're gone faster, yeah, I think. I, sometimes I eat waffle fries in two bites. 
Yeah, as you know, opposed you, to sometimes if you're fries. shoving them all in in one, I mean, well, and sometimes it's a lot of crisp. Your sometimes there's but no good soft here, potato. But with I a waffle would argue fry. too, there's no wasted potato with a waffle fry because, like a McDonald's fry, you lose a lot of the length on the edges that, when you're cutting. And they potato. hold so much more of whatever you're dipping in it. Well, that's yeah, true. It's that's easier true. to it's yeah, because you're good right with vessel. McDonald's fries, you're not eating uh, one at a time unless you need you're, like three. And, and unless you're a psychopath. Although for waffle fries, I think I need a bottle of ketchup. Yeah, or ranch. But I. So while I love a good French fry, and I think I think thinner, crispier, like the McDonald's yes, style, absolutely. better than big crinkles thick trash. But uh, crinkles, not trash. not trash. That's that's like that's like flavor curled no. potato chip. Every time I go to Culver's, God what? bless them, I always say, "Can I get those fries extra crispy?" And it's the best decision that you'll make ever. Oh, extra crispy, yes, but the crinkle is still good. It's not my first choice, though. Okay, but <laughs> fries are still not number one. Okay. Tater tots, but better oh, yet. Tater tots are certainly number one. We are one. Tater- talking about potatoes more than whooping cranes. Tater- <laughs> Eric, welcome to the podcast. That's okay, we're, though. I'm no, okay with that. The I'm podcast okay. where the off-the-record Let- question tends to be two-thirds of the talk. Yes. You, you can't divert me from this, though. Sorry. Tater coins. Taco oh. John's tater coins. Yes. The first time I ever had them, I was in Des Moines, Iowa, and I was like, the, the tacos are not the reason to go to Taco John's. It's the tater coins. It is. Now I shop for them. Tater is that, coins a, are is good. that a JoJo? Like a, it's a, it's more of a chip. It's a fried. Uh, well, slice. it's 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 a, it's, tot, it's a tater tot, but, but it's, it's like shallow. A coin. It's, it's more. It's shaped like it's a coin. Shape like so a you coin. get more yeah, crispy okay. surface, yes, less those are potato amazing. inside. Yes, you're They're right. They're absolutely phenomenal. You're what right. it really comes down to is, I don't know how I like the potato as much as I like the crispy Crust, outside. The crisp. That's what we're finding okay. out. That's why the baked well, potato and the mashed potato. But don't you have to be, is, think that there needs to be a good blend? It needs to be a 50-50 of the crust and the mixture. Maybe not 50-50, but yes, there has to be some potato. Yes, there has to be. We did like a pizza potato where the outside was really crispy. I mean, inside had a little bit of mash and a little bit oh. of waffle. Oh. Wait, wait, wait. Where's the pizza ingredients, though? It's not a, well, oh. it's a pizza shape. It's a pizza shape. So oh, again, no. Brian has wait, coverage. We're, we're going to go back to last week, and you guys know about my air fryers. Hang on. So, hang But hey, last night. All right. You can make fun. Last night, Sorry. I made nine pounds of chicken chopped cubes. chicken, uh, cubed, chopped, however, chunk, whatever nine you want to call it. Nine pounds of it. Jesus. Just, I have big kids. I know. Yeah, so, big kids. And I wanted, <laughs> and hang on. So I wanted oh. to have, I us, wanted to have roots and hearty kids. I wanted to have enough for salads this week, but I knew my stepson would eat a lot mm-hmm. of it. So we made, anyway, I got the two air fryers out okay. and three batches done. Wow. Okay. So that's why there's so that a power was, outage in my neighborhood. <laughs> Brian was using all the power. But, but when you talk about chicken. the pizza potatoes, you, you you bake potatoes, you yeah. get the potatoes, and then you you we've made pizza potatoes in the air fryer. Oh. Absolutely phenomenal. All the sauce and cheese and whatever. Okay. Very, I very I never even thought good. to mix those yeah. two up. But, but still I'm, would not win the bracket. But also air fryers are great for all of those potato products, let me tell you. Except mashed potatoes. Can you make, you can't make mashed potatoes in air fryer, I don't fryer, know. No, fine. Okay, maybe not mashed. If we can bring back whooping cranes from extinction, <laughs> we can try an air fryer with mashed potatoes. I have one question yes. real quick on topic of whooping cranes. Okay. 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 Whooping crane or whooping crane? I, I say whooping, but maybe I'm wrong. I say whooping. Whooping. Whoop. If, you whooping. Heard, if you hear the sound in the story, whoop, whoop. it's not oh. even a whoop either. No, it's, it's more like, like a. a... <laughs> it's a very echoey. But the cranes just no, doesn't have the no. same ring. It so. doesn't. It doesn't have the ring, and I can see how whoop, whoop. There it is, and the names you can make. No, no, it's not, but it's not whoop. There it is. <laughs> it's whoop. <laughs> Whoa, maybe that's where the name comes from. You know what? I, I think if you're if you're a fan of this podcast, you know that really what you have to do is just fast forward <laughs> the last few minutes and it goes off the rails. Yeah, that's we have gone right. off the rails here. Um, but, In the best uh, way possible. 
So as we all agree, tater coins are the best. <laughs> if you have a topic you would like us to discuss on Open Record or an issue you think we should investigate for Fox 6 News, send us an email to fox6investigators at fox.com. Eric, thanks for being thanks on for the podcast. Me, it was great I having you. We will have to have you back. As always, thank you to the people who make this podcast possible. Executive producer Sarah Smith, our editor Dave Machuda, and of course our chief photographer manning the video switcher, Kale Zimney. With that, I'm Brian Polson. We'll be back next week. 